Join us in a world where you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Sit back as we discuss hard lessons from the best and brightest the personal defense and competition shooting industry has to offer. Let us help you help yourself, no matter where you are on your personal path. Ballistic Radio is brought to you by Centurion Arms. Hard-use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. Now here's your host, John Johnson. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. I'm your host, John Johnson. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at ballisticradio.com and get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, musings on life and how to better interact with your friends and neighbors and maybe the opposition. I, I don't know. At Facebook.com slash Ballistic Radio. Hey, Joe. Always a pleasure. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. It, it's it's always funny when I am when I get to the Facebook part of that, and I just see your eyebrows go up occasionally as, as you watch me just like sort of bunny trail off of the script. That's, uh, what will he say next? Hey, guess what? What's that? This segment's also brought to you by Centurion Arms. Even if you're just a cook... A lowly, lowly cook. Are you calling tactical nukes from your couch every night with ease? You need to know that your life-saving equipment is going to work. And Centurion Arms knows it too. Veteran-owned and operated Centurion Arms is dedicated to producing firearms, parts, and accessories with an outstanding level of quality, functionality, and precision at prices you can afford. Whether you just need a new rail or barrel or something else to finish off your latest build, or maybe you want to take all the guesswork out and buy a complete rifle, Centurion Arms has got what you need and knows that when you need it, you need it to work. Visit centurionarms.com today to check out all their awesome products. Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. So I am super excited to have joining us on the show, Chris Seipert. So now you've got a, a last name now, which is... Indicative of something or other, I guess, right? It, it is. Good morning, John. I mean, well, not that. Um, you, I, to be clear, not that you didn't have a last name before. We just couldn't use it. Um, but uh, you're retired now, huh? Or about to be, or yeah. something like that? Yes, yeah, yeah, I've retired. Uh, his, his name is Robert Paulson. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> um, in retirement, I have a name. Uh, yeah, yeah, just just retired after uh, 20, 20 years service, and um, looking forward to starting the next chapter. Well, speaking of the next chapter too, so this is this is going to be like the magic of of radio, and and like a weird, I don't know if it were a comic or something like that, the timeline would be semi hard to follow. But so right now it's August, as far as the listeners are concerned, but we're recording this in July. So we haven't announced anything yet, but by the time people listen to this, we'll have announced that you're joining Citizens Defense Research as an instructor. Uh, that is that is correct. I'll be joining Citizens Defense Research, hopefully being able to contribute some of my experience uh, uh, from my military and special forces career, um, which, uh, by the way, is something I didn't touch on. I can get into a little bit more detail now that I'm, uh, uh, you know, now that I'm you know, a private citizen is I spent 20 years in the army, the majority of it in army special forces, uh, colloquially known as green berets. And I spent, uh, uh, the majority of that as a special forces medical sergeant, uh, and also spent uh, several years as an instructor of advanced skills at the uh, special warfare center. Um, yeah. So I'll be joining citizens fence research and taking my instructor, uh, experience and, and skills and transferring that over to, uh, uh, you know, helping out citizens fence research, helping good people protect themselves. Well, and, so what's funny about that is I, I, I've been very lucky in that I've met a lot of folks that don't have the exact same background that you do, but have had similar experiences. And one of the things that I'm super excited about with you is that in our conversations, we've been we've known each other for a couple of years now, I want to say, um, you know, and in, mm-hmm. in the conversations that, that you've had with Melody and in watching your interactions um with people online and in, in person, you're just kind of cool, dude. And the specifically your, your understanding of, of like context and how that shifts, um, you know, in, in different places is, is just been kind of impressive to watch. And, 
you know, so I'm I'm really excited about some of the things that we've got going on. And and for everyone that's asking uh, or is at least wondering, you know, oh, Chris is coming on. What's he going to teach? We're not, you know, at least right now, the plan is not to um, necessarily do the typical entertainment like, oh, we're going to we're going to do up drills with carbines now. Uh, that's. You know, we are we're still going to focus on the things that citizens defense research has always focused on as far as contextual training that approaches things from a different angle. It's just you're going to be adding your perspective to stuff, which I think will be really cool because, you know, one of one of the things that uh, that I think makes pretty much anything better is like having different perspectives involved in in the mix, you know. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you for the kind words, by the way. Nah, it's okay. It's okay. Um, you're actually one of the few people I've ever met that I've never met anyone that has anything negative to say about you either. And and maybe, hmm. I, I don't know what that is. Maybe maybe they don't have internet or, you know, you're just that cool. I don't know. So well, Now that I'm putting my last name on these podcasts, we'll see if, we'll see if my haters come out of the woodwork. Uh, it's, it's very possible. Very possible. Um, so kind of what I wanted to talk about today is... <laughs> You know, we've got the, you know, for lack of a better word, I guess the the air in the country is very tense right now. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as a student of history, I can look at everything that's going on right now and then look at historical examples where very similar events led up to. I mean, large scale violence, that's really the only way to, to put it. Uh, or, or, at, or at least limited violence in a, you know, in a multiple faction sense. And and forgive me, it's it's Sunday and it's earlier for you, but it's kind of early for me. Uh, I had a late night last night, so maybe I'm not being as eloquent about how I'd like to express that as I could be. But depending on who you talk to or what side of an issue you're on, on either side of an issue, there seems to be this push for almost this thought, oh, we just need to burn it all down and and, and blah, 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 right? And so I guess what I want to discuss is as part of your career, you've gotten to spend probably more time than you wanted to in places that were in active conflict where the people – you know, the, the neighbors, the countrymen, the whomever in those places were fighting each other for one reason or another. And I guess I sort of just want to talk about what that's like, like in, in actuality, what, what are the practical like things that people, you know, who are, you know, very fervent and passionate about whatever issue and think that this is maybe a good direction to go should really like know before before it's too late, I guess. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Love to talk about that. Um, so I am, as you say, I've got experience in, in places in conflict. I've spent uh, spent most of my career in Fifth Special Forces Group, which uh, is regionally oriented towards uh, the Middle East and Central Asia during my career. And uh, so I have nine, uh, nine combat deployments. Uh, two of those were, were true invasions, and all the rest of them were, were in countries that had ongoing insurgencies, uh, either against you know, U.S. personnel or sectarian violence, one citizen against another, or both, uh, typically both. Uh, and then I had a number of other deployments that were in countries that were uh, in various states of, of unrest where there might be you know, low-level you know, discontent among the populace that could break into a uh, you know into violence at any time. And when I hear uh, you know when I hear Americans talk about how uh, and, and just generally speaking, people are like, yeah, we need to we need to burn it all down. There needs to be a hard reset. You know, we've gotten too far off of what America's supposed to be. And, and and like you say, that's not even really a partisan issue. I hear that people on the left, people on the right, you know, people extremes on on both sides, that kind of have this uh, this fantasy of the romantic the romantic revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so going back to going back to our, our you know like you say going back to as a student of history, 
you know, now we read about our American Revolution and, you know, we, the victory and the founding fathers and what amazing people they were. And make no mistake, they were amazing people. Um, but if you were in, you know, you were Valley Forge with no shoes with dysentery, uh, it was probably a lot less romantic. And the, the abject human suffering um, that is involved, that, that is uh, inherent in domestic civil unrest and widespread violence, insurrection, you know, true civil wars, uh, surpasses anything I've ever seen anywhere on the globe. Uh, and the second and third order effects of it are uh, just absolutely astounding. So when, and we'll break this down, you know, in great detail, but when it comes to the, I guess, hidden costs, the, um, the hidden costs and the suffering that are brought about, there's nothing romantic about it. And, uh, and, and people really need to uh, do some deep digging into history or listen to podcasts like this one to get a better feel for, for what, what that looks like. Well, and we got to go to break. I'd like to get into that more. Um, and, and we will as soon as we come back. Right now we're talking uh, with Chris Seipert from Citizens Defense Research. Hey, first time I got to say that. Uh, and you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at easy-day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat, makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977, a legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories, as well as the EDC family of firearms, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match grade accuracy, superior ergonomics, and concealability with modern service pistol capacity as well as reliability at www.wilsoncombat.com. So we're talking with the newest member of Citizens Defense Research, Chris Seipert, and, and you're sharing some of your experiences, I guess, and thoughts as someone that's spent a lot of time in places that couldn't figure out their differences before it went loud. Um, and, you know, you were, you were talking about just essentially the sheer human suffering that sort of comes along with that sort of conflict and, and some of the, the second and third order side effects. I guess, you know, what would be the, is there anything in particular that sticks out in your mind as you know, your first time experiencing it, like, oh, I didn't think it would be this bad or this way or what have you? Hmm. That is a, that's a, that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, so the, I think the, the, uh, the thing that shocked me um, and this is going to sound, um, this is going to sound kind of strange, but I think the thing that shocked me was the uh, self-interest um, and the the uh, extreme self-interest that arises in situations like that. And I don't mean self-interest, like preserving my life, preserving my wife's life, my kids' lives. Like, you know, I'm, that's obvious, you know, just human, human emotion that when it push comes to shove, you know, you kind of got concentric circles of priorities. Um, but I'm, I'm talking the, the absolute willingness of, like, neighbor to throw neighbor under the bus, the, the willingness of people to inform on one another, uh, you know, to, to death squads, the, the willingness of people to to steal from one another and the level of corruption um, where, you know, people probably feel in America today, like they can't trust other people. They can't trust their neighbors. They can't trust, you know, whatever. And, and I would actually say much like uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah Kay, who was a guest here a few weeks ago. Um, yeah. The, some of that is manufactured. Having seen that in, in, in uh, conflict zones and in, in active civil wars, the level of paranoia and lack of trust, um, among people is uh, absolutely shocking. Where you know friends are friends are killing friends because friends have started to think that friends aren't as true to the cause as they might be. For example, where 
you know, I think one of the logical fallacies that people fall into uh, when they when they get into these whimsical, fantastical notions of, you know, romantic revolution, noble revolution, is that, like, me and my group of loyal friends that I trust will, you know, we'll basically stop worrying about paying our bills, we'll stop worrying about PlayStation and Tinder and all this other stuff, and we'll band, band together and we'll be like, you know, uh, Robin Hood and his merry band with trust in one another, and then we'll go fight the good fight. When in reality, um, every time you're together with these friends, you know, suddenly there's going to be, you know, clicks forming, and this person thinks that this person, you know, maybe isn't as zealous to continue doing whatever it is you're doing. Uh, and so then somebody decides to level an accusation against somebody else, and then next thing you know, that guy's just not there anymore. Somebody goes by his house to pick him up to take him do insurgent stuff, uh, and he just doesn't exist because somebody killed him because somebody didn't think that he was ideologically pure enough or thought he might have been compromised by the opposition or whatever else. And so that level of paranoia and people selling each other out at the drop of a hat, you know, you know, informing on their best friends and family members and stuff like that, uh, it, it, it just kind of this um, cannibalistic, you know, uh, event horizon level self-destructiveness um, and, and dissolution of any kind of community beyond the individual level. Uh, is what I find most shocking. Well, and again, as a student of history, right, so we we have a civil war in in our history that we can look to, right? But I think that, you know, what... I want to think about how to say this. There are... I think one of the main differences is you know, there were essentially two sides to that conflict, and there were essentially mm-hmm. two different nation states that happened to be, you know, pieces of the same country, right? So everyone right. was, you know, they might have disagreed on relative differences, uh, like, you know, specific issues they might not have agreed on, whatever. But for the most part, you've got two sides. Two two right. uniformed standing armies that are going to, you know, form regiments with uniforms and stand across from one another right. and and plink at each other and, yep. you know, civilian casualties, things like that, awful. But but that is that is one level of warfare. Okay, and mm-hmm. then if you look at the way things are now and how many different potentially incredibly violent disagreements there are about whatever issue you have, it wouldn't be that way. It would be an insurgency with multiple different factions, I think. Correct. And, and you'd have more experience with that than I would. But but the thing about that is that seems like a very ambiguous and very difficult conflict to even even determine who's on whose side because there aren't any sides and it it kind of sounds like a battle royale almost and mm-hmm. and i don't think people really get what that looks like can you can you speak to that a little bit more maybe yeah, ab- absolutely and and you're you're 100% right in that the american civil war was unique uh and and not a not a civil war at all really in the classical sense, in that the, the American Civil War was a you know war between Americans and Americans, but it was a, a geographically uh, divided war between you know like you say two uniformed armies, two two uh, you know two different uh, you know government systems, uh, and and partisan warfare was the exception rather than the rule. I mean there were some partisans both in the North and South, and there were definitely you know in Kansas and other places there there were you know uh, that kind of thing happening. But for the most part, yeah, it was Army of Northern Virginia versus you know Grant's uh, you know Grant's Army and so forth. Um, <clears throat> most civil wars um, are not geographically delineated in that way. Most most civil wars are you know partisan warfare, uh, literal neighbor against neighbor, and and so. You know, for example, you know, in places like Iraq, you have, uh, you know, in in Iraq, you've got, you know, the the northern uh, part of the country is Kurdish, you know, like north, central, and central, uh, western is Sunni, and southern is is Shia. But then you have, like, in the major cities like Baghdad, um, you know, you you might have a Sunni neighborhood here and a Shia neighborhood here, but then you also had intermixed neighborhoods um, that were kind of, like, the place where you know, 
people from both different sex could go and people from both different sex could live. But then suddenly, once you get to a certain point of uh, sectarian warfare, uh, you know, where in their case it was, you know, uh, religious sex, but it could be, you know, red versus blue. It could be, uh, you know, it could be anything you can think of. But think about the diversity in in your, the, the listener, think about the, the diversity in your neighborhood, um, where in very few places uh, around major metropolitan areas and major population centers, uh, is there any kind of homogenousness of, of ideology to the point where if if we decided to just like let's see, yeah, burn it all down, hard reset, let's get it on, it's like you may be having to you know three to five second rush to get to your car in the morning so your neighbor across the street doesn't take shots at you. Uh, and I think maybe the uh, the more now this is a little bit before my time, but I think uh, uh, a little bit more instructive type of civil war would be like the Balkan civil Balkan civil war, um, where you had you know formerly this city was you know Serbs Croats. Um, you know, and, and various people, various religions and ethnic backgrounds, and then all of a sudden the Civil War kicks off, and now you've got people literally duking it out in your cul-de-sac. Um, you know, your kids that used to go you know, stand on the corner and wait at the bus stop with those other kids, well, now, like, those kids want to kill your kids and vice versa. Um, yeah, your, your local Safeway, your local Kroger, um, that is now a place where IEDs go off. Um, and so that's the thing is, is that I think in people's minds, they would be able to like wake up and leave their house and go somewhere where the fighting took place and then come home and like, you know, punch a clock and clock out. And in reality, in your typical civil war that's uh, divided along ideological lines, um, you're going to be fighting in your driveway, in your backyard. Uh, your kid's bus is going to get out of on the way to school. Um, you know, if there is still school up until the point where it's so violent, school stops being a thing anymore, uh, which, is, which is actually something else we can get into. Uh, and, we, and we can touch on it now. I don't know how much time we have for a break, but... Uh, um, got about 30 seconds. Well, we, we actually got okay, about 30 so seconds. So, yeah, um, just hold that thought and we'll we'll get right to it. We're talking with Chris Seipert from Citizens Defense Research, and you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at Easy Day Prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. This segment brought to you by BigTexOutdoors.com. BigTexOutdoors.com is the best place for you to find all of your everyday carry needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe you need all the lumens from ModLite at the lowest price? No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room and now you need an optic on your carry gun? Well, BigTexOutdoors.com has those and they don't judge. Glock accessories? Yes, fast, cheap shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, BigTexOutdoors.com has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike. And you'll like Ike, too. Visit BigTexOutdoors.com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So we're talking with Chris Seipert from Citizens Defense Research about maybe stuff people should be thinking about as they get angry in the comments section on online, you know. Um, and, and you were getting ready to say, you know, until school stops being a thing. Um, and, and I will let you continue and I'm sorry for interrupting. No, 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 no problem at all. Uh, so until school stops being a thing, which actually brings to mind Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan is a place that I, uh, I only went to twice. I was there in 2001 and then I was uh, 2001, 2002. And then I was there in 2011, 2012, which is kind of surreal to be there 10 years apart. Um, but Afghanistan is, is, is actually a lot of times people try to say, well, you know, we're not talking like Afghanistan here. Um, in this case, I am. I think it's actually a great case study. So when people think about Afghanistan, and, I, and I'll ask you, John, and, and there's no right or wrong answer, but I have a feeling I know generally what you'll say. When you think about Afghanistan today and, like, the quality of life in Afghanistan, like, when, just when, when I talk about Afghanistan in, in the year 2020, what do you think of? Uh, it does not sound like somewhere I would like to vacation. No. No, which is which is actually quite a shame because uh, in terms of natural beauty, mountains, and all kinds of amazing stuff, it's it's an incredible, incredibly beautiful place. Um, every time I went there, that was kind of what I remarked. I was like, man, if, this, if it wasn't people killing each other and explosions and stuff, uh, people would pay a lot of money to come out here and snowboard. But uh, no, you're right. I mean, I think most people have the the, the connotation um, of Afghanistan as this prehistoric, like caveman place where everybody's illiterate and malnutrition, you know, malnutritioned, and people just kill each other. Uh, and frankly, for you know, in, in a lot of that country, that's that's an accurate characterization. Now, what I want you listeners to do, if if you're able to do this, you know, on your devices or whatever else, but uh, 
um, you know, take a minute and just Google uh, pictures like Afghanistan, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, whatever, and just and look at Google Images. Um, so the Kandahar Airport was built by uh, uh, built by an American company in the 1950s, I believe. Uh, there was economic development going on there uh, in the 1970s before the Soviet invasion, uh, which is the one kind of outlier in this in, in this analogy. Um, but the before the Soviet invasion, there were uh, young Afghan women going to university in Kabul, uh, wearing above the knee knee length skirts. Uh, it was a very westernized society, uh, and it was on the way up. And again, with their their natural uh, natural resources, natural beauty, and everything else, it was like this Central Asian. You know, mountain, uh, you know, mountain country that just uh, you know, has some gorgeous views and, and everything else. And then war broke out. Now, granted, that was the Soviets and a conventional invasion and so forth. But that began a chain of events that has basically locked them into you know, domestic violence since 1980. And like now, you get what you get. You get you know, rampant illiteracy, corruption, a non-functioning government. Uh, you know, uh, the mortality rates are astronomical. Um, and all of that, all of that occurred, and people kind of tend to think like, oh, well, Afghanistan is just the same as it was. You know, it's, it's never moved beyond the Stone Age. Well, that's not true. Um, it was a fairly westernized, fairly advanced uh, society all the way up until warfare destroyed it. The schools stopped. Um, you know, that's, that's what made me think of it is, is you know, you, you can't have education when you're getting shelled uh, constantly. You're literally just hunkering down trying to survive to the next day. And... Uh, when you're when you're that far down Maslow's hierarchy of needs and a lot of the finer things in life, um, you know, go away. I mean, for example, people with romantic views of, you know, this this romantic revolution and, and that kind of thing. Um, I'll tell you right now, if uh, <laughs> if you think that you're going to like, you know, leave leave your house where your wife and kids are safe and then go participate in revolution and then come back and clock out and like your wife and kids are safe, like you go to work now, that's not how it works. Uh, you know, for, for folks that have loved ones, family members, that kind of thing, you, you've got to realize that uh, um, everybody's going to suffer a lot, and kids suffering is, is one of the um, uh, one of the hardest hardest things to deal with when when being in a, in a conflict zone, watching your know, children die, children get caught in the crossfire, and even the ones that don't are being crippled for life by lack of education, by the psychological trauma done to them by by facing death and destruction every day of their lives growing up, um, and and the the way that that cripples. Uh, a child's development growing up in a dangerous, unsafe place, surrounded by anxiety, uh, and a lack of education, and a lack of any kind of fun, happiness, security, or anything like that. What kind of what kind of adult do you think that person's going to grow into? Do you think they're going to grow into the type of adult that's going to break that cycle? No. Probably not. Um, so that's my two cents on Afghanistan and its arc being instructed. If you, if you think, oh, it can't happen here, uh, like I said, there were, there were women in miniskirts in Kabul in 1977. Uh, and now here we are, you know, how many years later and, and look at it now. And that's all what warfare does when it's in your home. When <clears throat> I, so I'm not very political historically, right? And, and people have commented on the past and the reason that I've never been very vocal about any of it is because I've always wanted the show to be, and this is, this is going to sound very like uh, new age or snowflaking for some of the people listening, but I've always wanted the show to be a safe place, no matter what your, your personal beliefs are. Right. Um, and, mm -hmm. and people think that that means I'm not interested in that, that I'm not trying to influence things. And that's not true. And the whole reason that we're having this conversation right now is because I feel like, and I'd kind of like to get your opinion on this, I feel like that all of us are really sort of primed to be incredibly divisive in the way that we express our viewpoints, unless we work to not be. And and I, I guess what I would like for everyone to understand, you know, whether... You know, and I'm sure there are anti-gun people that listen to this. I'm sure that, you know, there are there are pro-cop people, there are anti-cop people. I'm sure there are, um, you know, whatever social issue you would like to pick, uh, I'm sure that there are people that are on either side of that argument that are listening to this show at one point or another. And, and the mm -hmm. thing that 
the thing that I would like, I guess, everyone to sort of understand is that, you know, if it gets to a certain point, there is no winning. Like, there's no winning. It's a, it's a Pyrrhic victory. Um, you know, even, even if you could somehow Thanos snap every non-believer out of existence on whatever, whatever side you happen to identify yourself as, the, the way that actually happens in real life is a destructive force that I don't think most people understand unless they've experienced it firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't know that it ever, I don't, is there ever an end to it? I guess would be my other question. Have you ever seen like one of these areas that has gone through this where they have that sort of period of unrest and, and it stops like in, inside of a generation or even two, you know, or is it, or is it always, are, are the effects there long after the people that fought in the conflict are gone? Uh, so, no, uh, right off the bat, uh, you know, I, I gave the, the bulk of my 20s to uh, spending time in the country of Iraq. And by the time that I was uh, 31, you know, we like announced victory, decla- you know, declared, declared victory and pulled out uh, suddenly. And uh, uh, fun, fun fact, uh, so my, fir- my first day in Iraq was the first day of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And then my last day, uh, my last day in Iraq uh, in 2010 was the first day of what they, they transitioned on September 1st, 2010 to, uh, Operation New Dawn, uh, you know, and, and it stopped being Operation Iraqi Freedom. And that was the day I flew out of the country. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, uh, that's kind of a cool bookend. And then like literally, uh, you know, within a, within a year, uh, American troops had pulled out. I was like, well, that was a cool way to end my, my time in Iraq. You know, we pulled out and they're stable and we had no troops there and whatever else. Well, guess what? 2014, uh, you know, ISIS becomes a thing, you know, from the remnants of AQI and all these other people, uh, you know, and ISIS becomes a thing in 2014 and then conquers half the friggin' Middle East and Northeast Syria and, and North, uh, Northwestern Iraq. And I find myself in 2015 right back in Iraq. Um, so, no, I, I would say it never goes away. And even if you look at American history, here's what people need to figure out, like need to get um, is the best case scenario. The best case scenario, even in America, you know, we, we won, uh, uh, you know, declared independence in 1776, won our independence and, you know, de facto in 17, uh, 1783. Uh, and then we had the Articles of Confederation for several years, but then still basically had to reset because the Articles of Confederation wasn't working. Like we, we were becoming a failed state uh, because of, you know, ineffective governance and then had to turn around. It took it took a couple generations to really get them. I mean, Hell, the British came back and set the White House on fire in the War of 1812. <laughs> um, so, so the 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 effects the effects of the, our American Revolution of that Civil War, so to speak, still lasted for decades and decades and decades before we were a peaceful, prosperous country that was stable enough to stand on its own without worrying about, you know, another country just coming in and setting our government buildings on fire. Uh, and then on top of that, like, do you think that the people that were eager for revolution in 1979 and in Iran were uh, were excited about the future? I bet they were, but the outcome, you know, eventually probably was not to a lot of their liking. It right. wasn't a glorious new future. It was a totalitarian state. Uh, and that's the same with a lot of revolutions that even not only is the outcome not going to be settled for decades, but the outcome you get may not be the one you want. Well, and we got to go to break and I'd, I'd like to talk about something else that history has suggested to me and i'd like to get your opinion on but uh right now we're talking with chris seipert from citizens defense research you're listening to ballistic radio welcome back to ballistic radio brought to you by centurion arms hard use rifles and accessories at easy day prices visit them online at centurionarms.com so we're talking with Chris Seipert from Citizens Defense Research. And, you know, before the break, we were discussing what does essentially what what is the end game? Like, what is the end result of things like this? And and you said something kind of intriguing in that, you know, most hopeful revolutions end at some point with a to, total, 
totalitarian government in in some sense or yeah. another. And and the thing that you know I have observed at least that springs to mind is even if you have a successful revolution it almost takes a dictatorship afterwards to rebuild things successfully and there are there are examples of that not being true but those are incredibly rare um mm-hmm. most of the time you know long period of conflict some side gains an you know an insurmountable advantage over the other side they win and then the next 10 15 20 years is spent stomping on whatever people are left over from the war and you know rebuilding this new thing that ends up people aren't happy with it and then it sort of goes into something new after you know the the original fathers of the revolution die or, or right. like from old age, um, assu- mm-hmm. assuming their family members aren't the ones that are in charge afterwards, continuing the legacy that, that whomever set. And, and the reason, I mean, is, is that your observations? Yeah. So I think that the, I think that, and I, and I don't use the term miracle lightly, I think the greatest miracle of America is the fact that, uh, you know, and I know it's, it's hip to be controversial, and obviously, uh, you know, no, nobody's perfect. People are products of their times and have, uh, you know, terrible practices they engage in that are, that are consistent contemporarily with their, their culture. But the, the, the founding fathers uh, of America were uniquely uh, educated, wealthy, um, capable, and willing to risk all of that to forge a new society. And I think that, like, the, it is absolutely astounding that, that that collection of men, you know, the signers of the Declaration of Independence, you know, Continental Congress, that they all existed at the same time on Earth in the same general place, this kind of backwater colony of, of the, the British Empire. Uh, because, frankly, that's, that's the unique outlier, is that what what makes America a miraculous occurrence is the fact that after the war was over, I mean, there's successful revolutions all the time that like, you know, gain their independence. But as you say, they usually fall right back into totalitarianism or civil war as, as the, the, the victorious parties then fight amongst one another uh, for control and such and so forth. Whereas in America, we had a, I mean, we had a, we had a general who basically resigned and returned to private life when he could have, when he could have been king of America uh, and then a bunch of other men who were willing to work together and compromise instead of start killing each other. And it's funny you say that because as we talk about Afghanistan, uh, there was the, you know, the, the Afghan war against the Soviets in the 80s. And then as soon as the Soviets pulled out, what happened? There was immediate civil war and all the warlords that had been fighting you know, the Mujahideen, who had all been fighting the Russians, now start fighting each other for primacy in the country. And that goes on for a few years until guess who's able to assert control? The Taliban. And in 1996, the Taliban take over the country more or less, and everybody's really happy because they restored order. Um, but then, you know, within the next five years, people aren't so happy anymore because these guys are jerks. Um, and that is the pattern that, that I would say 99.9% repeating of revolutions and insurgencies don't have a Washington, a Jefferson, a Madison, a Franklin um, who is uniquely suited to forging a new free society that's better than the one that resulted. Uh, you know, I think you ask a lot of the Arab Spring countries that we've seen in the last 10 years that have gone through revolutions, um, that it seems the statistical norm in my both anecdotal experience firsthand and what I've witnessed and in my reading of history, that revolutions and insurgencies uh, more often than not result with something worse than what they replaced. And I think people have delusions that, oh, this will be different. Just like every guy who robs a bank thinks he's not going to get caught. Everybody thinks they can get away with murder. Oh, we're going to have this insurgency. And then five years from now, it's going to be utopia. And that's just laughably absurd. Because even if it is going to work, it's going to take decades to work. And is it going to be worth it? I don't know. Well, you know, we we even have like a microcosm recent example in, you know, in Washington where Essentially, an autonomous zone is set up over, I think it was six city blocks. And, hey, look, we're going to do our thing. And it turned out that the thing they ended up doing wasn't really very much fun for anybody that was there, except for the people that were in charge. Now, a lot of the people that are listening 
are going to look at that and go, oh, stupid lefties, which I am not saying even at all, because I don't think it would have been any different if it had been people at the other end of the political spectrum, because human nature is, I mean, frankly, we're not very good unless we try really hard to be, it it seems Mm -hmm. like, you know? Well, uh, you know, I I think most of your listeners are probably familiar with, uh, uh, you know, our former president, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, quote, the man in the arena, um, where I'm not going to quote it for everybody, but basically it's not the critic who counts the man in the arena trying to get stuff done. And basically, you know, Mr. Roosevelt was, uh, um, he was basically discarding, you know, critics that just sit there in the armchair quarterbacks and, and say, you know, basically talk about how much better they could do it. And, you know, the point is, well, they get out there and do it. And what they, what they learned in that autonomous zone, and I agree with you, I, I don't think it's limited by political spectrum, uh, administration, governance, like especially competent, legitimate government, governance is really, really hard, really hard. Uh, that's why it sucks in most of the world. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think, um, and I think you bring up a great point. I think that people who are sitting in their like suburban home with their climate control and they're frustrated by the, uh, you know, the quiet desperation of their lives kind of thing. And, and I'm not trying to throw stones at anybody. I deal with that too. Um, but then they're like, man, wouldn't it be better if I just, you know, I had my, my jaunty beret on fighting my, you know, Viva la Revolution for, for freedom, you know, whether I'm right or left or whatever else. Um, I think that it's, I think that it's easy to, gloss over the difficulties of basic day-to-day stuff um, and, and, and appreciate that, like, I think we have very little perspective, is that, like, we, you know, for people that are critical of police, um, I've seen, you know, police forces all over the world, obviously, like, like, you know, police forces trying to be stood up in a completely failed state. Like, I've trained Afghan local police where we just take farmers and give them guns and teach them how to police their community. Um, all the way up to you know, U.S. police presence. And I think it's one of those things where we in America have a tendency to kind of want to uh, let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good, which is to say that, like, man, this government, you know, the city government or this police department or, or this policy or our tax code or whatever else, uh, you know, whatever it is that you, you or I are dissatisfied with isn't as good as I think it should be, so let's burn it down and start over. And I think that we lack perspective in realizing that, like, it's easy to sit on the sidelines and talk about how to effectively run a police department or effectively do this or that. It's much harder to actually do it. And a lot of times what you get is, um, you know, people that try to do that in these experiments and to find out, oh, man, this is really, really hard. And the, the problem with that is destroy what exists in order to put your far superior system into place and then find out too late that your far superior system isn't as practical or as easy to wield as you thought it was, well, guess what you have now? Um, like, you know, you broke it, you bought it, have fun with that. Uh, and so I think that there needs to be much more circumspection on radically changing anything in America, because frankly, we're not perfect, uh, but relative to everything I've seen in the world, we're doing pretty dang good. And the other thing, too, is that so I am scared that someone listening to this is going to go, well, they're just they're apologists. They're saying that, you know, everything's great and, you know, status quo is the status quo. And, you know, just keep keep it your bread and circuses. And, you know, you're not a true patriot or you're not you're not trying to make. Oh, yeah. You know, you're not you're not trying to make things better or something like that. I'm personally not saying that at all. Uh, and I, I don't think you are, but I don't feel comfortable speaking for you. But I, I guess what I'm trying to do is get everybody to come off the gas pedal just a little bit and be like, hey, um, you know, I, I see a cliff up here. I'm not saying that maybe we couldn't do things better. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do things better. I'm not saying that we shouldn't work to do things better. But I guess in the rush to do that, like how we accomplish that and and how it happens, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, and and, and I agree. And I I appreciate you clarifying 
Because to be clear, I'm, I'm talking about using violence to destroy or smash or radically uh, tear down what exists and rebuild it, um, which I, I think is you know, incredibly dangerous. I've seen it my entire adult life, how dangerous that, that kind of uh, mindset can be. Do I think that we can do better? Yeah. Do I think that we should do better? Yeah. Do I think that we should demand uh, better from every institution every day? Uh, in our society, I do. Do I think that we should uh, do that uh, peacefully uh, and sanely uh, and and prudently? Yes, I do. And, that, and that's kind of what I'm getting at is that um, I'm not arguing for the status quo. Uh, I am arguing um, that we need to be very realistic about what using you know, violence to achieve political ends, um, how dangerous that can be in terms of unintended second and third effects, uh, and and how, um, and how difficult a lot of the stuff that we're probably not thinking about can be. Uh, and, and I'll give you, if we've got time, I'll give you one very brief uh, anecdote um, from when I, was, uh, when I was a young trainee many, many years ago. I was in uh, the small unit tactics course out in the woods of North Carolina, which is kind of like a, a, a Special Forces Q course pipeline version of uh, Ranger School that's, uh, at the time, I think it was uh, six or eight weeks, six, six seven weeks long. And, you know, you're patrolling, you know, not a lot of sleep, heavy rucksacks, that kind of thing. And so we, we've taken some casualties, some notional casualties in training. And so we're carrying a, a, a teammate or two, I think it was just one teammate, who'd been wounded. And so we're having to run away from a fake artillery fire as they're throwing artillery sims. And we're carrying, you know, our, our – uh, and then we've been told he'd, he'd been killed. So we're carrying this, this dead guy on our team and carrying his rucksack. And, and then we finally get out of, uh, uh, you know, artillery fire. And then – we take a knee, and it's time for the patrol leader at the time to, like, find a, a helicopter landing zone to evacuate our wounded or dead. Uh, and in this case, it was dead. And so the patrol leader confirmed with the cadre, hey, this guy's dead, right? So he's dead. He's like, okay, cool. We want to uh, submit a, a report, you know, and then we want to record a 10-digit grid, and we want to bury uh, and we, and we want to bury our dead here, and we'll come back for them after the mission's over. Well, that was kind of a cheat because, like, oh, well, you know, we heard that other groups could like notionally bury their guy and then they just reset him and bring him back to life after they recorded a 10 digit grid. And then we could just zoom the patrol without having to carry this dude, right? Instead of having to move five, 10, you know, five kilometers or whatever to a helicopter landing zone. So the cadre was like, okay, permission granted. And, uh, and then, you know, we were all relieved. It's like, thank God we don't have to carry this guy anymore. Right. He's about to be, you know, Lazarus back to life. And then the cadre was like, uh, what are you doing? Start digging. We're like, what? He's like, yeah. Said you're gonna bury the guy. Start digging. And so rather than carry this guy, and probably it would have been another, you know, kilometer, another 1,200 meters, something like that. He, you know, the cadre stood there and supervised us as we dug a, you know, like seven foot long by four foot wide by six foot deep. Uh, and I don't, we didn't actually end up getting all the way. You know, we didn't end up digging all the way uh, down to six feet. But yeah, basically made us dig a grave for this guy because we said we would. And it was one of those things where we we had just said a thing. Like spoke it into existence. Oh, we'll, we'll bury him. And Cadre was like, okay, well, we'll then bury him. I mean, obviously we didn't bury him, but he made us do it. And it was much, much worse having to dig that grave with little, our little tiny, you know, entrenching tools uh, than it w- would have been to have just carried him for another, you know, 15 minutes through the woods. Um, and so a lot of people kind of they 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 see the the rocky training montage view of in, of, of insurgency of revolution, um, glossing over the grind and the difficulty that it really is. And that's what I'm trying to communicate to people. I'm trying to paint that picture of like how much it really sucks uh, and, 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 and make sure it's worth it. I mean, even our declaration of independence is very, very clear that like, you know, you shouldn't take this step unless there's absolutely no other recourse kind of thing. Right. Uh, and so I'm just trying to paint the picture. There's, there's stuff that you can't uh, don't, don't take the difficulty for granted because it's really difficult. And, we're we're past the end of the the show, but I I kind of want to get this concept out, and, and this is an observation, so it it could be wrong on my part. Um, but so I've I've gotten to speak to a lot of people that clearly don't have the same experience that you do, but have spent time in similar places, and almost universally like, yeah, this is horrible. We don't want this here. And these are people that had an ocean that they got to, assuming they didn't 
die and assuming that they didn't get horribly injured, that they got to cross that ocean and get away from it at some point. Like they, you know, if you're deployed, you know that assuming nothing happens, you get to leave, right? Yep. And like this, this is not your problem anymore at a certain point. And I think what people don't understand either is that if we go this way, we don't get to leave. There is nowhere to go, right? Yep. Um, something to consider. Anyway, uh, I'm, we're going to record another episode here in about two seconds. But uh, I do really appreciate you coming on. And I do, uh, I, I'm super looking forward to working with you and some of the stuff that we've started to discuss as far as coursework and things like that. Is, is there any final mm-hmm. thought you would leave people with? Um, I, would, uh, I would just encourage people um, to try to deal with the problems that are physically manifested in your actual real life uh, and, and try to spend a little less time obsessing over what you see, what is presented to you on social media uh, and take the interactions in your real life and in real meat space, as they say, um, and work on those and try to be a little more present in the physical realm and a little less present in the digital realm. And that'll probably help provide some healthy perspective on the actual state of things in our country as opposed to the perceived state of things. Um, God bless America. Chris, I really appreciate it, man. Um, thanks so much, dude. And I, uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. All right. Thanks, Joe. Yeah. Make sure you check out our website, BallisticRadio.com. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. And, hey, keep leaving those five-star review on iTunes if you think we've earned it. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe. and see you next week.